0: Hello, and welcome to The Workflow Show, offering workflow therapy whilst listening to discussions on development, deployment, and maintenance of secure media asset management solutions. I'm Jason Whetstone, Senior Workflow Engineer and Developer at Chesapeake Systems. And I'm Ben Kilberg, Senior Solutions Architect at Chesa. Today on The Workflow Show, we'll talk with Ben Metters, Post-Production Engineer for Spotify Studios. We'll highlight some of the things that Spotify does in addition to music streaming. We'll cover some of the processes that Ben helped establish for production of video projects at Spotify Studios, and we'll talk about how those processes were created, the importance of gathering feedback and earning buy-in from team members, and the value of creating and distributing clear documentation of the process. Then we'll get into the workflows of podcast production versus video production. How are they similar and different? But first, here are a few reminders. If you have suggestions or feedback on the Workflow Show or would like for us to cover something we haven't, please let us know. Email workflowshow at chessa.com or at chessapro or at workflowshow on Twitter. Please, please, guys, hit the subscribe button. It'll help you know when new episodes are available and get some more of that workflow therapy you're here for. And now let's get on to our discussion with Ben Metters. So, Ben, tell us a little bit about Spotify Studios, and then we'll talk a little bit about you and how you got there. Yeah. What I'm interested in is, I think our listeners and a lot of us know Spotify as a streaming platform, right? So, been around for a while. Tell us tell us what you're getting into or what Spotify is getting into these days.
1: Uh, well, you know, I think we've seen a huge push for uh, podcast creation in the last year or so. You, so, you see Spotify acquiring uh, Gimlet and Parcast and the ringer. And then, kind of, dramatically building out the infrastructure to create content, and and so I think Spotify is moving more towards creating content,
0: creating er, that original content. Correct,
1: creating original content. In some cases, it's licensing content, or creating exclusive content. The Michelle Obama podcast, Um, all that stuff.
0: Gotcha. So, as a production engineer, what would you say? Like, describe your role a little bit. Talk about what you do. I
1: oversee post-production technology uh, infrastructure and services for Spotify Studios in Los Angeles.
0: Gotcha. Um, so, what does a day to day look like for you?
1: It's kind of like two buckets, right? There's the sort of the day to day operational work, making sure the team that I oversee uh, has everything they need. The other half is working on design and build and workflow design, both for um, video content creation teams and some of the podcast content creation teams, as it relates to both uh, the infrastructure on site in Los Angeles uh, and our cloud infrastructure.
0: Okay, so um, so you're kind of you're kind of designing the processes of bringing content in th- and through the organization, all the, all the way up and through delivery and archive, right?
1: Exactly. So I'm, so I'm responsible for making sure our assets are safe from uh, acquisition all the way to, you're right, archive. Exactly.
0: Okay, great. That's a great point to make, I think. And from my own experience working with you guys and my experience just talking to you, Ben, is that your organization seems to be very well organized. Everybody seems to have their roles and they know what they're doing. The sort of, journey that a project takes uh seems to be very well defined. So I think it's really worth putting a fine point on the fact that the the big reason for that is because you have a resource yourself in place to help the team sort of figure out what all those steps are and then document them.
1: Right. Yeah. That's a big that's a big thing for sure. I feel really lucky that the team I came into had already done a really great job of documenting every single thing you could possibly think of and making it easy to find which is really great. I don't think you see that in a lot of places these days, particularly in in content creation, because it it changes all the time. But having all those things in one centralized place has really helped us quickly onboard and offboard people and and make sure everybody understands, well, this is how I, this is where our naming conventions are. This is where we put files. This is where files go. Yeah, that's been really helpful. A lot of our projects, at least on the video side, are, are quick turnaround and editors come in for two weeks and leave and we'll get another editor. So it's like a revolving door of people, right? So as long as we have everything documented clearly and simply, there's a lot less hiccups.
0: I remember, <laughs> I remember sitting in a room with you and two of your media managers, you guys kind of had an aha about, I was trying to sort of talk about your process and how you guys do things. And you you all kind of looked at each other and said, oh, why don't you just show him the uh, the internal site yeah, inter- that everybody goes. Yeah. yeah and, and I saw that and I was just like, this is fantastic. I mean, like... It, this is most of the questions that a person walking into an organization like this, you know, the answers to those questions. So what, talk about that a little
1: bit. Yeah, that's great. Um, we actually just overhauled it. We we did host an internal Google site and it's just like an internal web page that had for every role. So there's a page for editors, a page for AEs, a page for the media team, a page for the audio engineers, a page for the colorists, And it just has like a, it's a quick crib sheet of, of everything you would need to know in terms of like, okay, for the media team, how do I offload? What do I use to offload? Where do I offload to? For the AEs, it's here are naming conventions. Here's where we keep all of our master assets. Here's our proxy file settings. For the editors, it's broadcast guidelines for where the, the bug goes or, or stuff like that. And just having all that in place just makes it a lot easier.
0: Yeah. I, very detailed. There's screenshots there. There's, like you said, just just the, the, all the details about project settings, uh, where the bugs go, all that you know it it's just a great
1: resource it started before i arrived it was born out of uh, the video team at the time was pushing out a lot of content per week they were making videos primarily for the playlist to shows those videos usually had like a week or less turnaround time from the shoot date so we had to have everything very 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 tight so that there were no delays in delivery and we, okay. we just kind of kept that practice ever since and it's been really like you say very very helpful
0: let me back up for a minute and let's talk about the actual videos that your team produces. Where would listeners be seeing those videos? Let's connect the dots.
1: There's two like realms now, right? There's social. We're creating videos for Instagram or TikTok or, or whatever. The bulk of the studio's existence, uh, we were making videos for the playlist to show. There's three of them. There used to be a fourth a long time ago called Rock This that some people might remember. But essentially you know they're all little artist features they're, they're, there's uh either like performances or sometimes we call them cover stories which is a, a piece about the artist and maybe the album they're working on or their inspirations or things they like to do it's just a way to help people connect more with the music and that's that's what those videos are so you, you, they're kind of embedded in a playlist uh so if you're listening to hot country for example you'll hear a few songs and you might see a video of uh oh i don't know like midland or i'm forgetting all of my hot country artists
0: but, yeah, yeah, just to give the listeners a little bit of context on on where they might see uh, some of these videos, let's talk a little bit about you really quick. How did you get to to the point of becoming production engineer at Spotify Studios? Just tell us a little bit about your, you know, your education, maybe some of your previous experiences.
1: Yeah, I started in the post world at a company called Arc Media in New York. Uh, They make documentaries for PBS, things like Finding Your Roots, a lot of American Experience shows. I really loved that job. It was a great time. I learned a lot about post-production, kind of like old school documentary filmmaking, post-production, which is really great. From there, I moved to a company called Cine. They're a full-service digital cinema camera company where I, I... was the um, integrated services manager and, and helped run the integration department. We built out studios and post-production facilities and almost anything we could, we could build. You know? gotcha. And then from there i on Spotify, I was a senior AV engineer for a while until this role popped up in LA. Awesome.
0: So what are some of the challenges that you, you were kind of presented with right away when you started there?
1: The first one was um, they were completely on an external hard drive workflow. Ah, <laughs> we've never heard this story before, have we, Kilberg? <laughs> never, ever heard this story. Um, <laughs> never once, nope. I do like mm. remember how much, something like, I want to say around 600 terabytes of raw assets. Oh, wow. Because we, we shoot at uh, 3.2K on RE-Alexis for that latitude yeah. and all that stuff. So, you know, everything is beefy. Mm-hmm. And we yeah. have it backed up in two places. So suddenly I have mm-hmm. like, I walked in the first day. I don't, Jason, you never saw this room, I don't think. But there, there was just a room with like four cabinets of hard drives. Mm -hmm. The biggest challenge was, and they have a whole workflow centered around duplicating things to hard drives and making sure things are backed up and moving things to AE drives and editor drives. Uh, So the first thing was like pulling all that apart and understanding how they were working. And then I think I called Peter Price and said, I need some help. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> uh, <laughs> it's not a one person job sort of transition <laughs> so uh that the big challenge first was just me wrapping my brain around their workflows and understanding what they were making how they were making it right soup to nuts and then saying oh what can we do one to get them on the shared storage so they need, like we're, we're wasting too much time and money on external hard drives Then do like can we put in a mam that mm-hmm. would help because we have terabytes of b-roll right we, we shoot all over right. the country we have no quick way to find it you know a creative producer would say like oh you know we had that shoot in nashville we got this thing of this forest see if you can find it yeah somebody (laughs) on the shoot might say oh yeah that was like in february of 2017 like we'll go back to this drive
0: i'm sure all of our listeners are like oh yeah you know this is the (laughs) this is the story."
1: story um so that, those were the two big challenges were at first, like understanding what was going on and then, and then figuring out what the plan would be to kind of push them into, I don't know, the new world. What do you, where do you want to call it? I, <laughs> you, know, I mean, you can't scale out and, and produce quickly if you're copying things to drives. Right. It's not going to work.
0: <laughs> no, right. No. So editor A needs, needs footage B that's on drive C and that, yeah, I, we get it. <laughs> 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 so, I mean, how big of a work group would you say? you know, is is working on this content? Like how many people did you need to figure this out for?
1: Um, The video creative team and post-production team is probably around, when we're at full tilt, probably 30 to 40 people max. Mm, Okay. Right now it's a little lean as we're, you know, in the pandemic times, it's harder to create content as I'm sure we all are are feeling. (laughs) Yeah,
0: well, uh, so speaking of that, that's a great transition into like, what are you guys doing about that? What's your,
1: Um, yeah. I I think like everybody else in March, we were scrambling to figure out what to do Right, particularly around video. I think I think for the primarily the podcast folks could keep working, Hmm. you know, without too much trouble. This is more on that side. It was more like figuring out what mics to use, what room treatments to use, if there's an interface we should get, if there's an online service we should use. On the video side, it was oh, well, we have this server at the office that nobody can connect to. What do we do? (laughs) (laughs) Right, right. So I think for the first month while we were figuring out, because you know, it kind of got like most people, this sort of happened in a day. Like suddenly it was, I already work from home. Right away. Right. So for the first month we went back to an external drive workflow while we figured out what to do.
0: Okay. That I mean that that's the devil you know, right? (laughs) You know what the challenges are Mm -hmm. there and you've done it before. So that's and
1: we still had iconic in place at that point. Okay. So we could still have our review and approval process. They just and you're right, like they all knew how to be users working on external drives. So it was less stress for everybody. Where it eventually hit a point of like not working anymore was we were couriering drives around every day, and you know, like you know, sure. that the courier couldn't get in touch with somebody. You know, there's just so many more delays introduced in those workflows. So while they were doing that, I was kind of digging around with different remote workflows. Um, we looked at Bebop, which was really cool. We looked mm-hmm. at spinning up machines ourselves um, in the cloud. Eventually, what we landed on was using Jump Desktop. Okay, it just works great. You know, like I don't have any complaints. It has two factor authentication. Sound travels over it pretty well Mm -hmm. it's not you know it's not frame accurate but we haven't had really any complaints from our editors on like they can't do fine cuts for the most part sometimes it it gets really uh, hard sometimes some of the sizzles they cut are very very in line with the music they're using in the bed so sometimes that gets tricky Mm. but for the most part it's been really great and so we were able to just make use of all of our computers in the office For all of our users, it's no different than sitting at the office. Gotcha.
2: So that's a VNC client that does tunneling with two-factor authentication over the internet. So like you said, there isn't any great visual resolution. You're going to deal with pixelated weirdness, but at least people can get access to their machine. They can get access to the shared storage. And people can get their jobs done, albeit um, not in the best of quality remotely.
1: Right. So, you know, for for the editors, they're not doing the color grade. So it's not super important for them to have color accuracy. Um, Right. For the colorist, we worked out a remote grade. So he has a resolve system at home with a Flanders monitor at home. We have an identical system without a monitor at the office. They're both on a VPN, duped to the media at the office and at his house. So, you know, he can just send off a remote render when he's ready. Got it. Just save some time, we still have to get him the media at, at the top of the shoot. Um, but that, that's way better Absolutely. than sending around like four yeah. or five drives a day.
2: <laughs> oh, <laughs> for sure. <laughs> yeah. For sure.
1: Uh, it also made me so nervous to just dri- send drives around, you know, you never know what's going to happen. They get lost. They fall off the truck. they deliver to the yeah. wrong
2: press. I mean, so. and that's a liability for your assets as
1: well. Yeah. And we only did it for, you know, maybe a few, three or four weeks, um, and no, no hiccups or anything, but it was still quite, you know, I'm mm-hmm. paranoid about that stuff. Um, I think it would be so. Anyway, uh, yeah, it's been working out pretty well. I think we've been doing that since April, uh, more or less.
0: Yeah, that's great. Cool, that's great. I'm glad that's working out for you.
2: And VNC for our listeners is a uh, virtual network computing. Just to define it, because
0: we like to do that. When we think of VNC, we think of screen sharing, essentially, or, or not really screen sharing, but you're you're actually controlling remotely uh, another desktop machine. So, um, how often do you guys get together? and really just kind of refine the process or revise the process.
1: That's actually a really important thing to do. I, in fact, I think that's the only reason like Iconic implementation went well, right? Is that we got in front of the stakeholders and asked them what problems they have. Every month I have a check-in with our post-production coordinators and our media managers and our AEs. And they just say, please tell me what's working, what's not working. That has been really useful. We also do a quarterly software review. Okay. You know, I I like that you mentioned AEs. Um I feel like AEs are are your secret weapon mm. because one, they're usually very tech savvy. They're also the ones that assist the editors directly. So if an editor is going off course or off the guide rails, the AEs hopefully know enough uh, and have your back to support them and uh, get them back and on the right track. So I, I try to build a very close relationship with all of our AEs, both me and, and the media team, just as we're all in alignment all the time. Mm-hmm. That really helps, I find.
0: So talk about your media team. Obviously, every post-production organization has editors and producers. Most of them hopefully have AEs, but your media team, what is a day like for them?
1: Oh, a day like for them, um, it consists of a lot of different things now. So everything from, well, before pre-pandemic times, you know, they were ingesting media from the field. Okay. Right? That okay. was a big part of their day. Okay. It still is to a certain extent. Some of it's been automated now. But a lot of their time now is spent onboarding production partners or onboarding new editors or AEs into the processes that we have. If there's a request to gather assets for a sizzle reel or, or something right. like that, it's the media's job to go find those assets and deliver them.
0: Gotcha. And they don't necessarily... They are your, your process uh, evangelists, I guess, right?
1: Yeah, yeah, you're right. That's exactly what it is.
0: <laughs> so they're they're the ones kind of in charge of making sure that the process is actually happening and that you know people have what they need to keep the projects rolling, keep the process rolling. Um, and then feedback if there's anything missing or, you know, basically provide those people with what they need, whether it's training or documentation or whatever it is. Exactly. And, Sometimes um, it's
1: just, it's just how on a jump quick call and or yes, now a quick call and showing like, hey, this is how you do this process in Iconic or, or sort of like the catch all for, for uh, any issues. Right,
0: right. So I, I think... That's a really good thing to call out is that these guys are great at doing their job. It sounds like in, in your uh, organization, they're a little bit of a mix between what we would traditionally call like a media manager, an asset manager, and a post-production supervisor.
1: Yeah, they, I would say they kind of mix between your traditional asset management and more of like like a tier one help. Okay, gotcha. Does that, does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. They have, to know, they have to be tech savvy, not to support workflow, but also be attentive to detail around asset organization. Absolutely. Yeah, and they're very, they're great at that. I, I love my team. So I'm I am not as uh, detail oriented as they are.
0: <laughs> and that is definitely, I will say, from my own experience having that role, you really do have to have attention to detail. You know, you have to be willing to ask questions and 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 mm-hmm. and, and push back sometimes, and you know, really get those details. <laughs> So, you know, you have your group that you work with, the video team, the Spotify Studios. I and mean, what are some of the challenges you've had working with other aspects of the organization? So, you know, there's also podcasting. That's a different, completely different team of people, different workflow, different applications, different support, different building, different side of the country, yeah. <laughs> different country <laughs> in some in some
1: respects. Yeah. Well, yeah. In fact, in our global markets, yeah, we have podcasts yeah. all over the world now, which is fantastic. Right. Um, so let's talk about that a little bit. What's it like to work? Maybe I should break down like the the structure real quick. Okay. So Spotify Studios is is what I would call the umbrella organization around the five studios that currently sit underneath it. There's the ones I mentioned earlier that Spotify acquired uh, Gimlet, r and The Ringer. There's also the video team which we've been talking about. And there's also an unnamed Studio 4 which is also making podcasts. A lot of those particularly the, those three podcast uh, companies, Gamelit, Podcast, and The Ringer, they already have very well-established ways of working. They're all quite successful and they're all really good at what they do. So, um, you know, we didn't want to come in and we still haven't come in and, and said, like, we don't, we're going to change the way you work. Mm-hmm. They, all, they all know their workflow the best, right? So we're trying to respect that and standardize and unify across all five studios where we can. On the same time, the nice thing is, like, none of these studios have an established asset management system. Mm. Mm-hmm. They all have their own ways of tracking stuff, but they wouldn't have what, what we would all call a MAM.
0: Right. Gotcha. Gotcha.
1: That's kind of the nice thing about Iconic and Iconic's hybrid workflow and the, the capabilities of the storage gateway is that we can slot in the ISG and Iconic where it makes sense for each of these studios. So for the video team, um, Iconic is very embedded in the day-to-day workflow. Like they are using review and prove and commenting and transcoding and transcription, all that stuff. But for other teams, it, we might just use Iconic as an index of their final master assets. So the bare minimum for each of these studios is that we need to be able to see your final master assets so we can back them up to the cloud and hopefully tag them as well. That would be ideal. Okay.
0: So you have very, very detailed, well-documented process for the people that you work directly with and for that for that part of, of your job and your organization and your work group. But you just have some pretty high-level uh, requirements, goals in terms of using the tools and, and, and the process for the overall organization. Get your masters in there, this is the way they get submitted and,
1: you know. Right, so it's a lot of, and we're, we're in the middle of this process now, so I, I don't have too much to say about it other than that we're trying to pull apart each each team's workflow and understand it. Mm-hmm. And then that'll help us guide on what to do next. And part of that is talking to the stakeholders, understanding if there's gaps in what, in what they need, or if they don't want anything new. And you know, it, it's kind of, it's a line to walk.
0: Sure. If what they have is working for them and, you know,
1: there's... Yeah, and why, why would we want to change that, right? right? Like, if it's working, as long as it's scalable, it's good to go. Uh, we just yeah. want to make sure everything's safely backed up.
0: Uh, and secure.
1: <laughs> yes, um, yes.
0: Especially in this day and age of everybody has to be able to get to their stuff. You know, everybody who should be able to get to their stuff should be able to get to their stuff. <laughs> and, and no one else. So why don't we talk a little bit about podcasts and the workflow of creating podcasts and producing podcasts? I want to talk about this because I think it's something that, you know, when we talk about podcasts, obviously, we're really talking about producing an audio master, essentially. You know, on the show here, we talk a lot about producing video. I mean, we we ideally would talk about producing all sorts of media, but we focus a lot on the video workflow. (laughs) There's so many different like categories of video in terms of like all the different parts of the industry that we talk about, news, sports, you know, episodic TV, uh, film, all this different stuff. But let's talk about the audio workflow a little bit and the podcasting workflow one of the things that strikes me is just difference in the content in terms of file sizes so like a workflow that may work really well well let's 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 put it this way let's talk about it from a video perspective so you know some of the considerations that we talk about for say remote video editing they're not really like as big of a deal when you talk about when you talk about an audio project right
1: totally agree yeah in some cases they they're not effective at all I mean, any anybody could all you need to cut a podcast is a laptop and a good pair of headphones right right you have a good capture um everything else is just nice to have sure on the video side you, you just need a lot more stuff you know it's just that sort <laughs> short of it right i think also um maybe one thing to call except a lot of people like you know there's differences between video and audio production right that everybody sort of understands but what i think what's important to call out about it is that as you try to scale out because video production is so much more resource intensive it you got to kind of pay more attention to it when you're getting ready to scale out right it's like Mm -hmm. Things like, you know, storage space, transfer time, you know, bandwidth needed, how long it's going to take to upload a file, export time, project file size, all that stuff like is exponentially larger with the video production just by nature of adding video to it. Sure.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So let's let's talk a little bit about the application. When we talk about video production, we're talking Avid, Premiere, you know, Resolve. You know, there's all these different different video editing applications that we t- we talk about a lot on this show. We don't talk as much about the audio stuff, like Pro Tools, for example. Um, so I I've, I've been a Pro Tools user for like I don't know almost 20 years now. <laughs> and uh, actually, I think it's more than that. It is more than that, darn it, wow. <laughs> uh, Pro Tools doesn't render. That's something that, you know, when, when you have this giant video project in Premiere, for example, your application is not opening all those video files at once and playing them all back at once, right? It's rendering those, you, you're playing back a render, essentially, when you play back the timeline. Pro Tools doesn't do that. So, so it works a little bit differently than than some of these video applications, just by virtue of the fact that it really does need to have access to all those audio files on the timeline. And when you're when you're working on, say, a, a film score uh, or a uh, even a post audio production, it's a little bit different. You may end up having to, depending on how big your session is, you may end up having to to mix stems, which is kind of the equivalent of doing a render in Premiere. But you know, that's that's something that sort of sets these applications apart quite a bit, is just the fact that. There's no rendering involved in these audio station applications.
2: There's DSP involved, right? And there's real-time processes. And then when we're bouncing files to disk, certainly that's a render. But you're right, there's no massive frame buffer. We're not worried about you know having a gigabyte worth of mm-hmm. aggregate bandwidth or even multiple hundreds of megabytes per second for each individual workstation because... Um, some DP decided that they wanted to use the biggest codec that they had available to them because they right. wanted to. So that right? means
0: that, that Pro Tools, uh, as opposed to Premiere, may need to have like many, 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 many files open at once, uh, which which means that performance over uh, a network connection could suffer. Even though, you know, you've looked and you've seen like, oh, you know, by the numbers, we're just playing back audio, so this should work just fine. But that's one thing to, to I think to call out, um, in terms of the differences between a, a, a video and an audio workflow. Uh,
2: I mean, it's really, it's the immediacy of the sure. need to play back those files, right? Depending upon how how low the buffer settings mm-hmm. are in your digital audio workstations, right? Is its it set to 256? Is it set to... Um, five twelve is yeah. it set to what ten twenty four? Right, because the greater the buffer setting, the more streams and the the longer essentially the computer right. has to make sure the audio plays out correctly. And if that's coming from shared storage over a network and the network is saturated, yeah, it can cause problems. As opposed to coming directly from an internal SSD um, or NVMe right. drive, which is wickedly fast and can just you know like spitfire deliver unto you a hundred audio right. files without issue. Right. So that a lot of that plays into it, but then. On the, on the flip
0: side of it, just by virtue of the fact that the files are small and the project itself, the overall project itself is probably small, you can take advantage of workflows that you wouldn't necessarily be able to take advantage of with video, things that we I don't wanna say we won't. We wouldn't even think of doing, we think of doing them all the time, it's just we run into limitations. Like, use the Dropbox workflow. <laughs> use the Dropbox workflow, which is like, oh, I'm gonna throw this project in Dropbox and it's just gonna show up on your machine. Sure, that's great if you're talking about, you know, a few hundred audio files, but if you're talking about a few hundred video files, it's a little different.
1: Yeah, exactly. And, and you, that Dropbox workflow is something that we're totally using right now uh, for the remote, the remote production. And it's been great.
0: Yeah, and it almost works like shared storage when you look at it. It's, it's... been thinking
1: recently, like, why do we have to stop doing this when the pandemic is over? Right. right? Like, why not make every user's workstation their, their editing workstation as well? Like, why do we have to be directly connected to the storage ever? Right, that right. opens up a lot more possibilities, at least from the well, audience side.
0: That's that's certainly um, that's certainly the case with things like proxy edit workflows. Like, do you guys use those workflows as well in your in your? Uh, yeah, but we
1: do, we do use edit, work, edit proxies in the workflow just because we shoot such a high resolution. Our the open drive systems we have could could likely stand it, but just for ease of scalability, it's better to just use those. Per, I think we use ProRes proxy codec. I think that's what we use. Okay, gotcha. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We, essentially, an offline online workflow. Uh, but has made it so easy these days uh still have mm-hmm. like horror horrors from having to relink an avid mm-hmm. you know i'm sure you guys are familiar with uh how finicky avid can be yes
2: oh yeah <laughs> um, yeah i mean all the nles are a little bit tipsy around the edges it just depends on you know what their sensitive spot is and whether or not you like oh don't talk about its parents it'll just flip out whatever it is right <laughs>
1: Um, I've actually found that Resolve has gotten pretty good these days. I had a crazy idea a month ago or two months ago, like maybe we should just all cut and resolve.
2: A lot of people have been having that idea.
1: I think it's a great idea. And I I think the Fairlight system is good enough for some audio work, you guys, but it was good enough for basic.
2: It certainly has a good pedigree. Yeah, yeah, Yeah. for sure. So one of the things I want to come back around to, let's talk a little bit about that Dropbox workflow workflow just because it's good to define things for people if we're just whizzing past it, right? Mm -hmm. I think what we're talking about is essentially caching files locally to an internal hard drive based upon a cloud network share, right?
0: Yeah. Thank you, Kilberg, for breaking this down. I did (laughs) want (laughs) to... Right. Yeah.
2: And so that allows us to, you know, have our cake and eat it too in some ways because there's a central location where everybody can get to what they need and to push back what they need. And then they also have the benefit of working locally and having it um, right in front of them and internally, even though it might chew up internal space on their drive, essentially the files in their drive become expendable after you know you've finished your final master, and you can just upload things again. Is is that what you guys are doing on a regular basis, Ben?
1: Yeah, I think um, some of our studios are using Dropbox. Uh, others have their own file sharing systems, like you know your boxes, your your P clouds, whatever. It's, right, essentially, sure. that's what you're what you're describing is correct, right? Like there's a NAS share on site that things get recorded to. Those things get shared out via Dropbox or whichever collaboration tool that team is using. Um, and you're it makes it so much easier, right? You don't have to sneak around anything. Uh, If you're flying on a plane somewhere, you know your files are with you. You don't have to be online to keep working. Yeah, those are all really beneficial
2: for sure. Let's talk a little nitty gritty about some of the podcast stuff and what the standards are for what people need to deliver to you. Hmm. Um, And if you're sharing stuff back around is that. you know, broadcast wave files or the final renders, MP3s. Like, I'm just curious, you know, obviously being an audio guy myself and doing the workflow show on a regular basis, it's just fascinating to be able to chat with you.
1: Yeah, um, I can speak to um, assets we receive like from from finished productions, if that's helpful. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, sure. She always yeah, sure. ask for the session stems uh, and the session files, as well as the final output as an MP3 and as a wave. Okay. Pretty standard stuff. You know, I right. we have some delivery specs, but the nice thing is that each of these studios has already been delivering to the platform for a long time. So they they handle all that stuff. We just make sure it's all backed up and safe.
2: Gotcha. Mm-hmm. Good.
1: Which is great. It would be a, a I think a large bottleneck if we were receiving and uploading all of the, all of those shows
2: for sure so let's dig into the stems a little bit because i know stems means one thing to some people and exactly. another thing to yeah, others yeah, yeah. right That's you the know question. I mean, typically when we talk about stems in the music world, it might be I want all of my drums, at least maybe the overheads and the toms submixed into a stereo file and then a separate file for the snare and the kick, separate file for the bass and vocals, and then maybe everything else for guitars and keys all in different files so that a mix engineer or somebody else, even in the video world, they might want to say like, oh, I want to drop the lyrics out of this because I just want it to be this awesome Fight scene or into the background dialogue. Yep. how does that translate into the podcast world?
1: Yeah, I think it's show dependent. Okay, at minimum, typically we get uh, the stems as a music as the music bed and the dialogue. Okay, okay. Sometimes we'll get every individual talent. As a STEM, uh, it totally depends on the show and, and if we have any plans to cut social with it afterwards, as far as I know. Got it.
0: Okay. Yeah. So it's that ultimate use of uh, uh, reuse, I should say, with that in mind, um, what's what's going to
2: give us the most flexibility in the future?
1: Exactly. So it's, it's always looking backwards and saying, like, well, what if we need to cut a sizzle six months from right. now?
2: And I imagine part of that's licensing, too, with the music, mm-hmm. right? Being like, oh, I want to make sure we have clearance for this before that's, you know, we play that anywhere else that we might not be allowed to.
1: Yeah, exactly. That's a big part of it. Usually there's always a a licensing review as part of any, any asset that goes out.
2: Frickin Uh, lawyers, man. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, you know, one thing I wanted to circle back around to, and we were talking about how documentation has really helped define and speed up internal processes and onboarding. A question that came to mind was how soon to do people receive the documentation? Like if I'm a freelancer coming to do some work for you guys, how quick do I get access to how it is and how you guys do work?
1: Uh, The general answer is as soon as we possibly can, right? So if we're starting a week from now and we have their personal email address and they're willing to read stuff ahead of time, we'll send them a link to the site. We have a way to share it out securely without it being behind single sign on. Um, Mm -hmm. So the sooner the better. And then we On their onboarding day, we say like, you know, do you want to go through this in depth? Do you have questions? Just make sure they understand it. And we also make sure that they have access to that written documentation. What we've started doing recently is having little like two or three minute video guides.
2: Oh, awesome.
1: Here's how you share a link. Here's how you tag metadata. Here's how you transcode something. Here's how you request a transcription. Mm -hmm. Just having like Mm -hmm. a little video with a little like red circle that goes off on the mouse whenever you do something. I found it to be really helpful.
2: I'm sure. And when we can tell
1: it, we're getting less questions about it. Oh, yeah, yeah. (laughs) yeah.
2: Uh, and that speeds up workflow immensely. And, the, and it speaks to the power of documentation in that if people don't have to wait for an answer on how you wish for them to do things, if they can find the answers themselves, just like we talk about with media asset management, speeding up search process in terms of work production. If people can just jump into what they need to do and if that's already been well defined and even better that you guys have a media team that can support people to do that, it seems like you guys are just really helping to get things done in a timely manner, even though there's extra work that goes into making sure that all of that is in place.
1: Yeah, it's worth it in the long run. Ultimately, it means less work. Yeah. I think also just to just to maybe add some colour to that, I think the other important point is that everybody's bought into the system. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. So like they're not going to be the documentation if they don't think it's going to help them or if yep. the system's not going to help them. So we've spent a lot of time getting user buy-in. Right. So right, that's everything from like before we moved to iconic, it was talking about iconic, asking people what their pain points were and then coming back and saying, Here's how this is going to solve your problems. Mm-hmm. Does that work for you or not? And starting that out like six months before we started implementation really helped get everybody on board.
0: Right. So you guys were excited. You really wanted to jump in and get, and get into it, but you took the time to sort of roll out bits and pieces and, and communicate and get feedback about how, how that, how that was work. actually
1: in some cases, the silver lining of the pandemic was we got to slow down a little bit ah. and uh, really step through all those things. It, it, it was a, a great chance to sort of talk to every stakeholder individually Talk through their concerns, and then say, "Hey, well, let's look at this. Tell me what you think about this." And getting them excited and saying, "This is how you're going to save time. This is a like, remember how the old system? Remember how how uh, uh, convoluted it was to find old assets? Now it's like a three button click thing. Let me show you how it works." Right. And that gets people right. excited because so they can run off and go, "Oh, I have all these other ways I can use these assets now." Right. Yep. And that sort of grows and spreads, and other people hear about it. It makes it much easier to get people to adopt.
0: For sure, um, you got <laughs> first. Sure. You got to give them the reason to believe. But.
2: <laughs> right. You've demonstrated the value. That seems like a yeah. huge part, right? Selling the story and making it meaningful for them.
1: You also have to understand like their specific pain points. If you're trying to solve the problems you think they need that need to be solved, but it solves none of their problems, like you're not going to get anywhere. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it's happened to me in the past. I've seen it happen in the past. It's just way easier to to like double check right yeah, <laughs> before you yeah, move yeah, forward, yeah. right?
2: Right. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's basic salesmanship, right? I mean, well, it. It should be basic salesmanship to not talk at people, but talk to them and to, uh, you know, help them solve their problem rather than try and give them more work to do.
0: Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. It
2: sounds like we're, 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 we're we're talking about the Phoenix project. If anybody
0: hasn't hasn't read the Phoenix (laughs) project, it's, it's, it's a book about how to get lots and lots and lots of work done with a process. I'm reading it now. I highly recommend it. So let's ask you a few fun questions. Yeah. What are a few of the coolest workflows you've seen that have really been instrumental in helping people get their work done, either at Spotify or somewhere else?
1: That's a great question.
0: And it could be in relation to the pandemic, or it could be just something that you, that you saw that was cool and you just thought it was awesome,
1: right? I mean, wh- one thing recently is the, the ability to do uh, the new Resolve 1516 uh, has that new project manager that allows for much easier remote rendering. I think that was a big powerful thing. I don't know guys. All all I've been looking at is, is podcast tools recently. (laughs) Uh,
2: (laughs) What's, what's cool in podcast tools.
1: Oh yeah. There's so many cool things. I think there's a, there's a product. This is a good answer. Um, There's a product called Descript. Yeah. uh, Which is really cool. You know, I think, the pandemic triggered a lot of innovation in remote workflow, mm-hmm. Absolutely, um, and a lot of companies were, were kind of caught unawares, and other ones that are more cloud-based and AI-based were kind of rubbing their hands together going, finally. Uh, <laughs> right, Everybody's <laughs> taking us seriously. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. Now there's a need for us, and I, I think that's really true. And, and Descript is, is a really cool tool. It's I think to any Pro Tools user, they'd be pretty adverse to it because it's not Pro Tools. <laughs> <laughs> At, at the same time, uh, it has everything you need to cut a podcast. Right? It has built-in transcription. Uh, it even has this new cool feature where, if it has, I think some like about ten minutes of audio of a of a guest, it can then use AI to generate that guest saying a word that you didn't get recorded. Uh, <laughs> sort of that sort of like machine learning deep fake sort of stuff. Uh, um, that's well, cool. I'm probably explaining yeah. it poorly, but uh, you know, like let's say like you you're, like, you're like, cutting a sentence together and you need like, one word that you right. don't have. Right. Uh, it it will generate it for you based on a, like a Profile of that voice.
2: Gotcha. A sound print.
1: Yeah, it's something big, like yeah. that. I'm I'm not an audio engineer, so I'm probably explaining it poorly. But um, <laughs> uh, it is that sort of stuff is really powerful. I think we're going to see more and more of that. It's interesting.
0: Um, so you so you said about how Pro Tools users probably would hate it, um, and and I laughed. I laughed because I know exactly what you mean. But also, I've done a lot of dialogue editing in in my in my professional time as a as an audio engineer, and one of the things that I I found myself telling people is I would get an email from, from a project manager or a producer and they would say, Hey, um, so the client made a change to the script that you need to cut this part out. So if you could just kind of like, you know, and, and they would give me a couple of cut points and I would have to tell them like, you know, editing recorded speech is not like editing a word document. (laughs) It's, you know, there's inflection and there's, you know, all kinds of different things that make it, you know, it I can cut it there, but you're not going to like it. <laughs> I wonder, I, I don't know if you know or not, but I wonder if, if this tools like Descript actually play with that. If they have the, I got to believe if they have the ability to construct a word from recorded speech that they would be able to like say, oh, you know, change the inflection so that I can actually edit here.
2: <laughs> Isotope RX Advanced already
0: does that. Uh, okay. Okay, thank you, Ben. There's a
1: lot of really thank cool you, dynamic EQ things out there. Mm-hmm. I think mean, that's like one of the new big trends in audio. I'm not an audio engineer again, but like in the plugins I've seen and my guys using, uh, that's one of the, those are the sort of the new things they're excited mm-hmm. about. Mm-hmm. I think that makes their jobs a lot easier, is my understanding.
0: That's great. Kilberg and I are big fans of um of of Izotope um and their mm-hmm. and their suite of plugins. They're they're very cool, but RX. Right? Is there it's it's their like noise reduction suite. I it, there's so many different tools as part of Rx that um you know it yeah. just it, it it just does a lot of really cool stuff. And there's also an advanced version that yeah. does surround and all kinds of other yeah, stuff. Very powerful. Yes.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I, I, yeah. We, we, I think primarily our, our teams use the post-production suite. Okay. Which I think is okay. RX 7 and Ozone. I'm probably getting yeah. this wrong. No, you're right. You're right. Uh but it's, it's very yeah. handy. Yep, yeah. I, I think it's at some point we wanted to try and standardize. The plugins everybody was Mm -hmm. using, and I I think Mm -hmm. the plan was to just use Isotope. Mm -hmm. Um, I think we pitched that plan because we didn't want to impede too much on creative technique. But um.
0: one of the things that I love about Alloy, their their plugin Alloy, it's a channel strip plugin, and and I mean it's a great plugin. I'm sure I'm I'm going to be proven wrong here, but it's Mm -hmm. I wouldn't say that it is that much more wonderful or fantastic than any other channel strip plugin. But the fact that you can run uh, a track of audio through one single plugin and get all of your processing done. Just really streamlines Ooh. workflow. I found, mm-hmm. and you know that plugin actually allows you to like change the, the order of the signal chain and all that kind of stuff. So you can actually treat it like you would a patch bay or whatever.
2: Yeah. I'm- Most of the good DAWs out there allow you to save channel strips as presets as well. So if you've got your favorite EQ or or compressor or reverb or whatever it is, you can save that as essentially a chain of effects that'll just pop in for any of the channels, which is pretty cool too. But I'm with you in terms of having um, an ease of use inside of a single interface where it all makes sense to your brain. Whatever makes sense to your brain obviously is going to work the best.
0: So my workflow, you guys will appreciate this, my workflow for doing dialogue, a lot of the time it was that I had a script that was divided up into blocks. And what I had to deliver very small, like not even high quality MP3 files, they were gonna be linked to like a a learning management system or some type of presentation, guided presentation. So I needed to deliver all of these audio files that were chopped up into little bits. The best way to do that was to run them through a single plugin. And that way you, you end up with, you know, mm-hmm. if you've got a hundred clips on your timeline, you've got a hundred audio files. Then at the end of that, that are all processed through that plugin. Having the channel strip Wait. was really uh, essential to doing that. Otherwise, it would have been several passes. And uh, I digress. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> so that's cool. So how do you predict innovation in the M&E industry? Um, so really, what the heart of that question is kind of like: what, what do you, when you look at what's out there, what do you think is really going to catch on and be cool?
1: I think like in general m and is the last to come to the table when there's a, a new tech idea. So um, things like machine learning or AI or, or cloud-based computing, like the other IT industries are already doing it before m and is. So in general, I, I just look and see what other people are doing outside of m and and go, this is going to come to ME eventually. I also really like talking to systems integrators and manufacturers and saying, what are you guys working on? And those two things kind of help me get an idea of um, what's going down the pipe and then how we might be able to use those tools.
0: I think a lot of people that do what you do and a lot of people that do what Ben and I do um, have some great answers for this question, but what's been the hardest part of your own growth in the M&E field?
1: Wow. That's a really good question. When I was, when I was starting out, I think it was, there's no like central place to learn anything, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Like you learn things as you go, you learn things from people that have been doing it more than you. You have been you learn it from I any mean, manufacturer training, um, but there's no like centralized wealth of knowledge. I guess. So that, that was really hard. I think in the last couple of years it's gotten a lot mm-hmm. better. There's mm-hmm. things like the Netflix partner help page, which is amazing. Mm-hmm. NAB is helpful. I think all you know, even NAB going remote this year really helped. A lot more content got pushed from the, from that show floor into the mm-hmm. cloud, right?
0: I've noticed too that you also have a lot of companies, a lot of organizations are putting out like, you know, blogs for education. Like FrameIO has a great blog on their site.
1: Yes, Frame's blog yeah. is amazing. That's a like really yeah. good
0: mm-hmm. yeah. And there's that, that's just one example. There's there's all kinds of other ones. There were some before that, but they were really hard to find, and you really had to know what you
1: were looking for. Yeah, it was so, mostly forums, right? I think uh, the Creative Calves is like one of the yeah pinnacles okay. of knowledge. For a long time. Yeah, yeah. It still is, yeah. I think. If you're troubleshooting an avid problem, it's probably yep. the best place um, to go. I
0: actually think I owe Creative Cow for for where <laughs> I'm at now. <laughs> ben, what are some shows or movies that you've been uh
1: watching or you think are really cool these days. So we finished watching Mythic Quest on Apple TV. Mm, okay. I, I thought that was really great for a few reasons. One was they they have integrated the Unreal Engine into like cinematic storytelling, which is wild. Mm. I I know The Mandalorian's doing that as well, uh, in a different way, but um indeed. Uh, which is really cool. But this you know, the way they've integrated like was essentially a World of Warcraft-esque game uh into the storytelling was fascinating. I think the other thing that was really cool was their quarantine episode where they sent out iPhone kits to everybody and shot a whole episode remotely. Uh, and it didn't look like a Zoom call. Nice. Which, which nice. at the time was very different than everything else coming out during the... This was like early yeah. like April, something like that. Um, I, so that shows has really good. I think it's really smart humor.
0: Yep. Okay, so same question, but for songs, composers, albums, bands.
1: Let me pull up my Spotify app. <laughs> <laughs> I got back into some old prog rock, okay. listening some Yes okay. albums. Um, nice. New bands. i have been listening to um, a band called Saint Seneca. Uh, is it one of my favorite bands on the kind of the indie scene. My music. I'm exposing my weird music taste here. That's what, uh, I,
2: that's what we love. Yeah.
1: My one of my favorite bands is the Mountain Goats. With their, John Darnielle, sort of a. a I don't know how you describe their music. It's quite good. He just had an album that came out a couple months ago called Songs for Pierre Chavon. And it was it's basically, he read a book about the fall of the uh pagans in the, the twilight of the Roman Roman Empire. Hmm. Uh, wow. It's fascinating. Wow. So anyway, he, wrote, he wrote like a bunch of songs about him. And um, I don't know, it's just a jam. He recorded them all a, on a boombox, uh, which is like what he used to do back in the day. Wow. Wow. I, I, I love stuff like that. I think he's an American treasure. His, his way with words is really Bob Dylan-esque, I guess. Uh-huh. I don't know. He's much yeah. more of a poet sometimes i was a musician in other life so i like listening to stuff i played i was a a jazz bassist for a long time um so you can always have like some some sort of big band music on in the background sometimes that's Uh, awesome
2: the wiring i find in your brain being able to think in music right being able to essentially like have a feeling and have your hands connect to a chunk of wood and some metal and um make that come out as a tangible emotion that somebody can uh, connect with is magic and the different language it is right? literally yeah
1: yeah you to, like, you to, like, it's like any language you have to keep practicing it otherwise you lose yes. it yes uh, right very That's quickly right. just like if you're in shape or not in shape um, <laughs> yep. actually um, there, there is a
0: line i can't <laughs> recite it I'm, i might have to look it up and there is a mm. there's a line in name of the wind about uh, music being a fickle mistress like if you give her, Whoa. if you, if you give her the time and the attention, she'll always be there when you call. But, but if you don't, mm-hmm. she'll never be there when you, when you come calling. Right. Um, yeah, <laughs> I butchered yeah, it, but it's true, but it is true. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Very good. Well, it's been great to spend time with you today. Ben Metters, post-production engineer for
1: Spotify studios. Thanks so much for having me guys. It's been great.
0: And with that, I'd like to thank our listeners for listening to the workflow show. I'm Jason Whetstone, senior workflow engineer at Chesa.
2: And I'm Ben Kilberg, Senior Solutions Architect.
0: Email us your suggestions at WorkflowShow at Chesa.com or shout out to us at WorkflowShow on Twitter. The Workflow Show is a production of Chesapeake Systems and more Banana Productions. Thank you for listening and enjoy your day.